0: Hi there, and welcome to the Brave, the podcast about the people, systems, companies, and ideas that are contributing to building a better future. I'm your host Beth and Vincent, and episode to episode, we speak to interesting people doing interesting things in various different fields. And today, I'm bringing you an episode which has an extremely interesting and very conversation in it. So. I chatted to Tom Goodwin now if not come across Tom he is very prolific on Twitter he is very kind of opinionated on the intersection of co- content commerce culture and technology and he has a sharp wit and very kind of dissective way of looking at the world which and I think he says this in the episode it, it, his thoughts have a very kind of marmite reaction from the audience I think that's the polite way of putting it but I often find a lot of things he says very well observed so I was very keen to have a chat to him it's quite hard to kind of put a title on this episode but it is just an interesting chat with a very interesting chap Um, so I hope you enjoy it I loved our conversation I could have carried it on for hours to be perfectly honest and without any further ado I think we'll get stuck right into things so, um, do you want to kind of start off by telling me a little about yourself? And kind of, you've had a very varied uh, career, so it'd be really interesting to hear about that.
1: Yes, very varied. I always think these days, we're very lucky to be born in this age, because we mm. can probably have sort of six to 12 different careers if we want, and not necessarily um, consecutively. We can sort of do two or three things at the same time. Um, I was always quite a lively, um, sort of brained person, sort of always asking questions, always being a bit annoying, to be honest. Um, I ended up working in advertising, which was a very, very, very good place for me to be. I loved it. I loved all the people I got to work with. I loved what we were about. I loved how we thought. I how strange we were um sort of moved up towards roles which were much more about the future um more sort of philosophical roles about how technology was changing the world um you know i was a terrible account manager i was a terrible account director i wasn't very good at being a strategist and i sort of found a nice home um, sort of looking more at the sort of side of business more than advertising more at the general marketing environment Um, And because I was quite opinionated about um, seemingly everything actually, um, people kept on asking me to sort of speak at things and I'd write pieces and people would quite like what I was saying. Um, So I ended up sort of writing a book and being a bit of an author and then recently I've been asked to make a TV show for Euronews Um, and I keep on being very aware of the fact that I do quite a lot of talking just like I am now, I do a lot of thinking but I don't really make anything happen, I don't really sort of end up bringing about a change. Um, And therefore, I've kind of gone through this process now to try and find a way to actually genuinely make a bit more of a difference, you know, rather than just leaving a room and everyone's like, oh, that was nice. Um, How can you make something happen?
0: Yeah, because I think uh, in the kind of preamble of setting up this chat, you kind of said to ask tough questions. And one of the ones I had is, are you just another futurist?
1: Yeah, no, um, I mean I can I, I think um I felt quite guilty traveling around the world and going on stages, sort of waving your arms around and being interesting and you know, somewhat helpful. But I was always aware, one, whenever I left the room or the stage or the airport or whatever, or the or the Sheraton, um, nothing would really change. And two. I was doing that because I was aware how difficult it was to actually do that so I was being quite either strategic or lazy, to be honest. Um, And I I was always quite surprised, actually. People obviously got quite irritated with me generally. Um, But no one got irritated because they were sort of saying, who am I to do this? You know, no one ever got irritated or told me they were irritated because it was quite sort of disingenuous and naive to go around saying, you know, all you've got to do is this, you know, when I hadn't actually done that myself. Um, So yeah, I think um, my goal now is to be much more focused on, Um, bringing to life real change and focusing on what really matters. Um, And in particular, the word sort of futurist. I'm trying to sort of move away from that, because I think there are so many people out there that are going around, you know, everything's different now, disruption is changing the world you know we now buy things from phones um you know come on it's 2022 we've been doing this stuff for a while you know let's get a bit more real you know let's think about how can we improve the packaging how can we improve customer service um how can we make it easier to buy things how can we make it easier to find things we really like um so it's to be a sort of more pragmatic form of that um that hopefully makes it easier for me to actually bring about change
0: so uh, i mean I, i've obviously kind of read your work and i've followed you on twitter for ages and a lot of the stuff you say is i don't mean this to be rude but like it's quite obvious stuff isn't it like you know you need to be thinking about these things and the challenge is almost in the doing what why do you think companies in particular are really bad at this because they know the world is coming like they know the future is coming and they need to act but they never seem to be able to do anything about it
1: yeah i mean you are absolutely right and again some people sort of seem to think it's a very good thing that i say what other people are thinking and they haven't said it other people get very irritated by that and both have a point um i think something very weird happens when large groups of people get together um i think something very weird happens in american culture in particular which does sort of celebrate sort of ego and diligence and um tribe building um that's not to say these are nasty people but i mean i've always loved all the clients i've worked with i've just been aware that you get sort of five independently minded um passionate um driven people together in a room and give them a you know 200 million dollar media budget and before you even are people people almost change their language so people almost end up sort of congregating around you know oh well people do buy brands for the why and I'm thinking I don't think anyone actually believes that but this has just become the sort of dance that we're singing it's like people get given out a script at the end of at the start of every meeting and it's like someone must say that you know millennials are hard to please and someone else must say that we're more connected than ever before and you're thinking this is nonsense um I think we like being very busy um, Anything um, that really makes a difference is often something that needs a lot of collaboration between different departments. Um, it's way easier if you're Burger King to introduce a chatbot than it is to ensure that all of your restaurants have a kiosk that you can buy from, you know, because that needs to, you know, people need to work with the real estate department and the health and safety people and the franchise organizations. Um, so I understand how we've ended up in this situation. Um, I just wish more people were a bit more passionate about feeling proud of what they've made come to be.
0: But do you think that's that's partly to do with the structures they operate in? You know, it's like misaligned incentives.
1: Yes, I think um In all honesty, um, what I loved about advertising agencies is we were generally slightly strange people that probably, you know, teachers thought were quite nice, but would get into trouble for being a bit disruptive. Um, You know, we probably all got school reviews saying, you know, we reached a high attainment, but we were sort of struggling to focus and our effort levels were quite low. Um, And I think most people find their home. Um, and if you end up working for a very large sort of Fortune 500 company in marketing in a sort of campus built in the 1950s, you know, in the suburbs of a, um, a sort of regional capital, um, you're probably not there by a mistake. Like you probably didn't, um, you know, you, you probably didn't deserve to be, you're not deserve, you, probably, you probably didn't make the final round of Droga 5. Um, and then decide to take that job because I had a company car and benefits. Like you, you probably love the fact that you get to be, have quite a predictable life. You probably like to be sold to, you probably like to have a career development program, you like to have um, a pension. And those are wonderful things. Like, these, are, these are very good attributes to have. But having worked for a big company myself, I worked for GlaxoSmithKline for about two years, um, you know, they very much work for people who want structure and they don't want to feel too vulnerable and they wanna have the annual performance review where they can show that they hit all the marks and then they get the 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 rise to the next sort of pay band. And that environment generally doesn't work very well for people who are a bit nuts like us.
0: Yeah, I'd agree. And I think actually um this is kind of a tangential point, but the marketing's kind of focus on metrics has been a further kind of pigeonholing that of where you're meant to be able to kind of advocate for everything with data and especially with brand, especially with experience. I mean, you know, there, there is no data for that. We just know it works. So what are we meant to do?
1: It's a very good point. I think um as an industry, we really struggle to create an environment where people can be comfortable to trust us. Um, You know, I think um, we are totally right. I mean, there is something magical about brands. So there is something unknown and mysterious. There's like a crazy sort of multiplier effect that can happen just because someone uses some nice copy in a newsletter to you. And we can't really explain that. And that's fine because we probably never will be able to. But I think we could do a better job of being a bit more adult in other situations. So, you know, we sort of love this idea of an hour long presentation while we're going through customer insights and the big idea. Um, but probably most of us have not, um, you know, read the analyst reports on their company and the fact that you know most of their sales are coming from China these days, and currency um, ch- changes mean that you know their import costs are massive. And actually, everyone in the room is really terrified about um, you know the new chairman that's going to try and take over the board. You know, where we do a very poor job of being adults. Like we almost sort of enjoy being sort of uh, too mysterious and too difficult sometimes.
0: I agree but I also think it's a problem with marketing not having that seat at the top table not being including those conversations.
1: Yes no it's true I think um, I've sat in quite a lot of conferences over the years where there were three people on a stage and generally people sort of pointed at each other as being the person to blame um, and that's you know the question when you ask sort of media agencies and uh, creative agencies and clients you know why are Ads not as good as they used to be. Um, I think it's absolutely the case that um, there is sort of blame to be directed. But I also think in life we have to take control of what we can control. Um, how can we help our CMO get more respect at the, um, the board level meetings? Um, how can we create a process by which we get more involved with more sort of like proper things, um, which perhaps the CEO is more bothered by? um so you know we're we're very capable people we're very um lucky to do the things that we do and maybe we can find a way to to sort of uh do these things ourselves a bit more
0: yeah i guess but like so the the kind of central premise of your book digital darwinism is obviously like the the world is changing you know exponential change exponential technology driven change and companies either either need to thrive or die and what I've often found in my career is, you know, marketing, or it's not just marketing, sometimes it's products, sometimes it's engineering, come to the table and they'll have a proposition to the board or the CEO, like, we need to fundamentally transform this business model. And the business is unwilling to listen to that. And almost you know, what what do you do in that situation? You you can't you can't advocate any harder.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're lucky because we get to work across lots of different clients, so we don't need to necessarily, you know, commit sort of harry-carry or something if one of our clients doesn't want to change everything after one meeting we've done. I just mean, um, at the end of the day, people have to have a degree of thirst to do this. You know, there are companies out there that don't have to change. Um, There are whole categories out there where change is not that fast. Um, There are companies out there where actually they are just managing the the decline. You know, you look at a department store like Sears in the US and it's owned by a billionaire that's um, financially going to gain if the company goes bankrupt. Um, so one doesn't get to go into those meetings and be like, "Oh wow, you know these people at Sears are really stupid. You know they're going to die slowly because that's actually you know what most people want. Um, so I think we have to look at these things in terms of appropriateness. Um, many companies are so screwed because all of the incentives are such that they won't ever be able to change. Uh, many companies are screwed because they have a culture which is just deeply shitty um often the people that m- m- i sort of need my help the most are actually the companies that really don't need it because they're already doing amazing stuff um and the companies that need me the most um aren't able to buy me because they don't have the you know they don't have a, a way to do this they they um they'd much rather spend money with accenture or bain or something and have someone tell them that what they're doing is great uh, and then they get to be happy for the next four years um, and then they can leave so
0: Do you you think it's kind of a naivety of particularly kind of the marketing function that we have the right to change these businesses, that we can change these businesses?
1: Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I think we are probably all quite naive um, and therefore um, it's wrong for us to think this way. but I'm quite happy to be naive. I'm quite happy to be naive and um, excited uh, to be naive and think I can make a difference and then end up realising I can't. Um, so, yes, but, you know, let's not dwell on that too much.
0: Yeah, in- indeed. Indeed. I agree. <laughs> and then I think you kind of touched on that kind of cultural change because it's not it's not just about new products or new proposition or new markets It is like fundamentally something. Like business culture can be broken is that something you ever well presumably you do touch upon and how does that kind of intersect for you
1: um the hard thing about what i do and the reason why you know i'm not an owner of a mega yacht um it's not the only reason um is because i'm kind of a generalist in my approach you know every time i talk to a large company um often they've got lots of little problems um and often those problems are all over the place. You know, often it's they can't really bring innovation to life. Often it's that this department and that department don't like each other. Um, often it's that they live in a building that's you know making everyone unhappy. So they work in a building. Um, often it's because their business model is a mess. Uh, often it's because they've got crazy competitors. They've got way more money than them. Um, and therefore my approach is to try and be quite generalist. Um, and you end up with the case where almost every company has a culture which is not quite right, um, mainly because of the thing we talked about before actually. I mean, to, to join a big company, you're either one of two things. You're either a person that wants a degree of predictability and a degree of safety and you want a company that looks good on your resume and you want a company that when you get a job offered, you know, your mum and your dad's kind of a bit proud because they've heard of it. Um, or one in sort of 10,000 sort of hires will be the kind of change maker that's brought in to make a difference. And they've, you know, just worked at Beats by Dre, or they've just come from Spotify. Um, And then they're sort of put into these roles and basically sort of told, you know, come on, uh, change us. Um, So it's very difficult to operate in that environment. Um, I think the conclusion that I ended up coming to mostly is we can't really change these companies that much. We can probably find units to change within them. Uh, we can probably find new entities that they can create. Um, you know, So if you're a company like Sears, it's probably better off right now creating a whole brand new sort of retailer for the future from your 50 best staff and um, $25 million, than it is trying to change the whole sort of behemoth that is a department store.
0: I agree with that. I guess there will still be, I, you know there's an element of kind of your bought like you you'll accept that job as the change maker because of the nice salary because of the benefits and I guess you have any advice for those change makers who almost like they're bought into to deliver on something they actually can never realize
1: um my advice would be that probably everything you're thinking is right And you probably understand everything, and you are just in a very difficult situation. Um, And therefore, you are in control of how you respond to that situation. you know, if you're put into these position at a very high level with the board's blessing and lots and lots of money at your disposal, um, you probably have a near impossible task. Where you have to recruit sort of twenty five people a bit like you at the same time as integrating them, and you're going to work your nuts off for about three years and then just die of exhaustion. Um, and that's about as good as it gets. Um, if you don't have that sort of budget, you either decide. Am I going to not really do my job and sort of, you know, smile nicely in every meeting and get everyone to like me um, and sort of have an easy life, but ultimately change nothing? Uh, or am i going to be amazing at my job and i'm going to go into every meeting and go oh my god you could do this you could do that let's bring in this person what about 5g what about 3d printing um in which case everyone's going to find you sort of very in, in, irritating and not really invite you to any meeting um so you sort of face this spectrum media of how well do i do my job how much energy do i put in how long do i want to stay here how happy do i want to be and most people end up a bit in the middle where they kind of bring a bit of change here and there they sort of um they don't have a sort of mental breakdown they pick their battles they do you know one thing that they're a bit proud of every six months and then after three years they go on to something else um but in a way in the current environment that's probably about as good as it gets um because most of these companies don't really want to change
0: yeah so you're better off going to a startup probably maybe
1: i think um i'm not sure I'm i'm not um experienced enough to know um, just be aware that you're wrong to assume that everything's going to be great somewhere. Because if you're in a startup, you know, you get way more control, but then you're around other people that don't actually know what they're doing and there's no real experience and you know suddenly you've got no budget. So um, you that's know, you can't get people to do favors for free anymore. Um, yeah, I mean, no, we just need to be uh, aware of reality. You know, if you feel like you're doing something wrong because it's hard, um maybe you're not doing something wrong or maybe you've just been asked to do something that's really difficult um if you think that people are being weird and illogical that's just because people are weird and illogical um in particular if you do your job too well you just end up scaring the shit out of everyone so
0: yeah <laughs> that's a good point actually because <laughs> obviously like a lot of this kind of the rhetoric we're using is very kind of silicon valley like it's very kind of american and it comes from that origin i guess and you've obviously presumably at some point shifted over to the other side of the pond you know it is there is there a huge cultural shift there in the way people kind of approach change making and i guess like transformation
1: yeah the the hardest thing about moving to the us from the uk is you presume that not that much is different You know, you presume that if you just use the word sidewalk rather than pavement, if we talk about elevators, not lifts, then you're fine. Um, Actually, it's totally different. Like everything about corporate culture is very different. Um, It's very, very not eccentric. Um, It's quite serious. It's quite sort of puritanical. It's very process driven. Um, It's um, and then, you know, so pretty much everyone who's good after about a year will probably on the edge of being fired um, or sort of leaving the country you know of a degree of stress um, and just be quite bewildered and then you suddenly realize that there's all this stuff you don't know it's not your fault and then you go through a sort of process of learning the the culture and how things work and how to make a difference and it's um, you know these these companies are very large um, you now, I'm kind of used to um, if you work in the UK, a big sort of creative or media pitch you know, for a car brand, you know, it might be sort of 10 or 20 or 30 million pounds or something. Um, you know, you can work on a pitch for a company that makes a label maker, You know, something for sort of any retentive people to label uh, boxes with. And there may be a label maker that's a sort of dominant label maker and they spend 50 million dollars a year on, on media. Um, and you realize that they got sort of 55 people in their marketing department and 100 people in their insights department. So these, these things are always quite big. Um, and therefore there's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of navigation that's required. And you always presume that by being you know right, you're helpful. and quite often that's not really true at all.
0: Yeah, I think the shift for me, I found, is is attitudinal as well. So I, I remember giving a talk in the States, came off the stage, my, like, handler person was like, oh, how did you think that went? And I was very British, and I was like, eh, could have been better, like, eh, yeah, I did okay. And they were, she literally, like, touched my arm and went, oh, honey, no, you should never talk about yourself like that. <laughs> no, it's just like, uh, I mean, like, I, I, it was fine. Like, I'm not upset or anything, but... I have found that like always on that you've always got to be like, this is amazing. This is incredible. Quite draining.
1: Very draining. And um, it means that uh, if you are honest, people always presume you're a psychopath. Um, You know, because if you say that an idea is not a great idea, you know, in England, that means you're being helpful. You'll probably come back with ideas that are better. um, Or, you know, sort of talk to other people who are in the room that had better ideas. In America, that's sort of considered extremely sort of destructive and negative and taking the energy out of the room. Um, Yeah, so the the process of changing is is very difficult. Um, And I'm not being overly negative about America, because there's lots of amazing things about America, like the optimism is incredible, the energy is incredible, the sense of self determination is amazing. Um, You know, so there are lots of reasons why I'm here. I just think it's important that people, um, you know, are aware of this background.
0: Mm. And if it's not too personal a question, why are you in America for, for those reasons? And was, was there anything else that was kind of a
1: draw? Um, not pretty much entirely because of the optimism, um, because of the passion, um, because of um, the the sense of scale as well, I guess, Um you know you you can be in a really really exciting advertising meeting and in the uk and you're in slough and you sort of get a you know sort of train back together with the whole team and you have sort of three stellars before you get to paddington and that's really great um but there is something quite amazing about having a meeting for a client and they're in the empire state building um you know there is something quite exciting about going in a pitch meeting and you sort of get bundled into the back of a massive suv um, you know, it just felt like I was on an episode of The Apprentice or something quite a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, like it's, it's, it's good working on global accounts where you get to see that you're working as part of a team where, you know, what you do may be rolled out to 100 different markets. Obviously that happens a lot in the UK as well. But the combination of scale, um, a sense of um, positivity. Um, and a sort of overwhelming energy and sort of passion towards what people do.
0: That's really interesting. To throw a kind of spanner in the works, obviously we've just been through a pandemic. There's a very kind of uh, concerning geopolitical situation that is not looking like it's going to resolve soon. And kind of America is this land of optimism that the facade does seem to be crumbling a bit, you know, their place on the world stage. I would say this about the UK as well. To be perfectly honest, like it does, kind of feel almost this kind of Western dream is falling apart a little bit. Do you kind of get any sense of that from? Does that come through in any of the work you're doing? Almost, we're living in this kind of you know the end of the Gilded Age in a way.
1: Yeah, um, this is a very good and profound and sort of deep question. That it's quite easy to answer in a way that may almost seem flippant, given the scale of it. Um, I think every day we have um almost like two containers um, on our desks or next to our bed or wherever we are and one is the sort of the, cont- the sort of wine box of reality or, or the wine box of news uh, let's not call it reality it's it news um and by drinking from there we get informed about the latest developments in ukraine we get to sort of look at the very divided political landscape in the us we get to be you know sad or happy about brexit depending on how you feel Um, and we get this overwhelming sense of dread and information and change and uncertainty. Um, and then you have the other sort of wine box, which is your wine box of your own reality. Um, and some people are waking up in lovely houses in upstate New York, and they've got a great garden they're working on, and other people are living in an amazing sort of flat share in Shoreditch with people that are really good fun to live with. Um, you know, I live in Miami where I get to, um, sort of drive a nice car. Um, and we have that sort of wine box. And I think every day, um, we should be aware we get to decide um what we're drinking from. And a diet of only our own reality and our own circumstances is deeply ignorant um and will lead us to a direction where um we're not being sort of good humans that understand the sort of relativity of our lives compared with others. Um if we drink only from the other box, then we're gonna be overwhelmed with dread and feel guilty about buying a sandwich from um, any store that um, is over sort of a certain price because that money could have gone to someone else. And I think we have to sort of create our own daily cocktail. Um, Most people I think in work, um, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but I think in the US there's almost this agreed sense that we've all been through so much that we can only just about acknowledge it but we can't really dwell on it so much because that makes it real and that means that people might just start sobbing into a microphone on a Zoom talking about how they couldn't see their late father's funeral. Um, So I think everyone has worked in a sort of agreed, shared, suspended reality, not because they're ignorant people or because um, they're not able to deal with it, but just because that's what we sort of tacitly all agreed. And I think it's probably true for the UK as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think there's also a bit of kind of um, gallows humour about it all going on a little bit. Like, oh, lol, the pandemic, like, wasn't that terrible? But now we can go to the pub. Isn't that amazing? You know, type thing. Whereas, I don't know, I I, I don't know if this is the case in the US, but obviously we are having the massive kind of energy crisis here with prices, you know, inflation predicted to hit 10%. I don't think people have necessarily caught up to the fact of what that's going to mean for their daily life. You know, like I, I've, I've noticed that I do a lot of driving to see clients, and like every time I fill up my car with petrol, which I should be driving an electric car—that's a whole another point. Um, I'm like, oh my god, like that's concerning. I am concerned about this.
1: Yeah, and that's where it's um, uh, it, it's it's quite challenging if you're in a situation like me, where I'm lucky enough to have people that occasionally ask me questions and listen to what I've got to say. Um, Because I think there are some elements of the world that are perhaps making us feel way worse than they should because they are just part of human nature. And that is always how life has been. And we could have decided you know, a few months ago to feel the same way about Afghanistan or we could always feel this way about Yemen or you know, South Sudan or something. Um, and for some reason, the sort of way that the world works is we have asked to sort of focus on particular things at different times, not because it's fake news, but just because of the reality of the world. Um, and then there's lots of news which is actually very real but not particularly um, sort of fashionable. Um, and often quite horrible so that we don't ever think about it enough. So that would be the cost of living crisis. I mean, you know, if you think about the different uh, percentiles in different countries, you know, it's the very most vulnerable that are facing the most significant uh, changes to their personal finances that we've ever known really, I think, um, unless you sort of count the 1970s. Um, And somehow we're not really thinking about that much because that's too close and that's too, like deeply depressing. Um, But we really should be focusing on the fact that there are going to be lots of people that literally can't afford to eat or can't afford to heat their homes. Um, But at the same time, we also have to sort of try and keep in mind that, you know, for a lot of people, um, the last 50 years have generally seen most things improve. Um, And Trying to keep sort of all of these things in our heads at the same time, I think creates so much of a cognitive dissonance, it's quite hard. Like, you know, we may realise that filling up our car with petrol is more expensive than ever. But at the same time, we probably can nip on an easy jet flight to Barcelona um, and get a bit of sun to top up the fact that we were cold for three weeks. And obviously that's very different depending on your level of of income and privilege. Um, But we should try and have this sort of holistic view of this stuff all together. And it's very hard to do that because if you talk about this stuff, people think that you're probably being more sort of optimistic than you should be, or you're being dismissive. Um, And if you don't talk about it, then we all live in an environment where we can't really have difficult conversations.
0: I think it's also about what you almost kind of promise. So I grew up in like the nineties, like I was kind of like a little kid and then a teenager in the noughties and that like the social kind of promise to you was like the world is golden like the berlin wall has fallen like everything's open like capitalism's great and then you graduate into the worst recession in history so I I don't know I think different age cohorts experience this slightly differently
1: no they did and it's amazing how quickly things changed um and um yeah that what you say about what the world almost sort of owed you or promised you i think is interesting because i think i grew up in 1979 and it was basically the gap between the world being so terrible in every way um that you were lucky to get anything and the sort of start of your era which is not only should you expect to live a nice life but almost the world owes you a nice life and if you're not having a nice life then something deeply unfair must be happening and it has to be the sort of system rather than you. Um, And I think that boundary is quite interesting and that boundary is inherently quite um, sort of tense for a lot of people. Because if I do a sort of tweet saying, oh, we should be aware that, you know, child literacy has never been um, higher. You know, the number of women that died during childbirth has seen amazing um, progress, look at GDP across the world. You know, I sort of grew up in an environment where every time you were in London you're a bit scared because of the IRA bombings. Um, I do remember you know researching nuclear weapons in the school library um, with their Encyclopedia Britannica because the sort of threat of the Cold War was everywhere. Um, and I don't know sometimes um, that gives you a sense of perspective that I think some people don't have today.
0: Yeah, and I think if that that plays into this whole kind of millennial like snowflake millennial discourse. And actually, like, we did have it good, like, I'm not gonna lie, like, we had it really good, you know, it was like, it's Tony Blair, like, you know, education was properly funded and everything, but it's the, it is that rug kind of pulled under you, where you realise reality exists, and it is, yeah, it is, like, up to you as an individual, but also, it's these kind of collective choices we've all made about the society we live in
1: yeah and i think i mean we are remarkably lucky in that we have a lot more freedom to build the life that we want these days um we have many more opportunities than we've had before um you know i think good versus bad i know i know you wouldn't want to phrase it that way anyway but it's better just to think of it as different you know there are many aspects of life today which are absolutely amazing and better than they've ever been before there are many aspects of life which are absolutely horrific um more than anything else no one's ever sort of trained us how to live in this age so no one's ever told us You know, here's your phone. Don't read too much of this. This is bad for you. Um, We've got no idea how to sort of navigate this stuff. Like we've got we're asked these days to almost be our own press departments where, you know, every time there's a sort of global catastrophe, you know, we almost need someone to tell us, oh, you know, bad things are happening in Afghanistan. You know, what flag should we put on our Facebook profile? You know, um, awful things are happening with racial inequality. Like what, you know, what sort of uh, GoFundMe do I point people to? And we're not really wired to deal with this stuff. It's not right that people care so much about what we've got to say. It's not right that we should um, have to be on top of the news all the time and be ready to sort of answer questions on it. Um, It's not right to care so much about everybody that you don't look after yourself as much as it is to only look after yourself. Um, So it's very difficult to navigate these times.
0: I agree. I agree. I think that's a really nice place to kind of like, you know what I mean? Like that's a nice kind of, you know, coat coda to the conversation no, i think that's what i'd
1: say like these are very weird times in some ways things are amazing in some ways things are awful things are probably going to get better uh, people feel very guilty about the good stuff they have in their life because we haven't figured out what our relationship with technology is so if you're feeling confused and a bit happy and a bit sad and massively overwhelmed it means you're probably doing everything right
0: yeah and i think i take solace from the fact so i studied at the medieval history at university and literally like they thought they were living in the end times. Well, pretty much every period in history has thought is living in the end times and, like, this is the worst thing ever and, like, it can't get any worse than this. And we have continued and we have kind of evolved and gone on to great things from there.
1: Yes, and we are amazing. Like, we we have at our disposal all of the tools we need to do incredible things. Um, I think people quite often think either I'm way too miserable or I'm way too sort of happy. And it's more that we've got everything but how we use it frustrates me um you know there's no reason why we can't all have an incredible abundant enlightened connected um, empathetic thoughtful world that we all create you know ultimately almost every single person on the planet is a good person they're just sort of struggling with the tactics of how to manifest that um and i live in massive hope that we'll figure it out Mm,
0: i like that that's a really positive like it's a realistic but positive sentiment if that makes sense you know So if people want to kind of find out more about you, your kind of work, your writing in particular, which is really interesting, where where would they head to?
1: Uh, I think I'm on a website, tomgoodwin.co. You can find me on Twitter. I think I'm Tom F. Goodwin. Um, You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm probably the same. Um, Yeah, and it's quite often, it's just a random series of thoughts. So for quite a lot of people, it's probably a bit obnoxious and um, overbearing. Um, I'm starting a blog, I think, quite soon called Nowism, but I'm not sure if I'm going to do that because there's a vulnerability to writing a blog. Um, I've got a book out. um, It's the second version of Digital Darwinism, which actually talks about some of this stuff. Um, So you might like it.
0: Thank you so much for listening and to Tom for coming on. That was a really far ranging but good conversation. So if you're not aware already, uh, The Brave is obviously a podcast, the podcast you're listening to now. But we also have a newsletter over on Substack, which explores very similar themes uh, through written kind of content and also the podcast gets shared in that email list as well so if you're looking for kind of easy way of getting updated on when new episodes are live I recommend signing up for the newsletter because you will get additional content and you will get notified when new episodes go up and finally I'm always looking out for interesting people who want to come and talk about interesting things on this podcast If you fit the bill, get in contact with me. You can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, even Instagram, even TikTok now, which is a vibe. Um, But you can also contact me on Bethan at Bethandvincent.com. Always happy to hear from people and kind of get pictures for people to come on. So I'll leave you with that. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week, whatever you're doing. And I will speak to you again soon.